I had what I like to call a turning point in my life. Now, I've had a number of turning points in my life, um, but I had one in particular that was very memorable for me. This was a moment where life was going in one direction, and then I suddenly realized I had to turn directions. I was a senior in college, and I was up one morning early with one of my best friends and the father of another one of my good friends. And the three of us men were sitting around early in the morning drinking a cup of coffee. And I I said, and all of a sudden the the conversation got to talking about politics. Now, I was a senior in college, and my best friend at the time was a poli-sci major. And so he knew the ins and the outs of politics. He knew the players. He knew the conversations. He knew the theories and philosophies of this whole thing. And the other gentleman, the father of my other friend who was involved, he just had so much to say. And this conversation got going. And these two men began discussing and debating. And at the time, it was the war in Iraq. And we were trying to figure out what to do and what should we think about the president's actions. And I remember sitting there, and I didn't have a thing to say. And I remember almost being embarrassed about it. I remember sitting there thinking, man, it's not that I want something to say about politics. It's just that I... I've never really had a critical thought of my own. I've never really developed my own way of thinking. And I don't have a philosophy that I'm engaging on this with. I sat there for almost an hour just realizing I'm about to graduate from college. And I don't really know how to enter into these conversations in a meaningful way. It was this turning point. The Lord used this mightily. It might seem like a small thing as I retell the story now. But what happened is I went home that night and I began to reflect I began to think, what's going on that I'm in this conversation and I can't adequately engage? i got nothing to say. And I decided that week as I was reflecting, I said, you know what? I, I want to be a person who is both learned but also has something meaningful to say. I want to have my own thoughts and I want to engage. And from that point on, the Lord used that as a turning point in my life where I began to think for myself. I began to really enjoy learning. I began to really enjoy reading other authors and the people who have come before us. And that marked a significant turning point in my life. Now, I shared that story with a number of people over the years. And I can tell you that as I share that story, many other people that I share that story with will tell me I've had similar experiences. Maybe not the same thing about knowledge and learning, but but I've had turning points where I was going in one direction and I realized I had to move to another. But here's the thing. When it comes to turning points in your life, the only person that can really benefit from a turning point is the person who's willing to pause and to reflect and to say, what is going on right now? And what do I need to consider right now? And what new action needs to take place from my heart moving forward in the future? Church, I believe that we are in a major turning point for each of our lives as well as for the collective unit as the church right now. We're in a turning point. And what I want to see happen is I want to see God's people pause and adequately reflect and to say, who are we as a people of God? What do we believe in? What are our values? Where are we going? What's our voice in the world? And how are we moving forward both individually and together? I want us to see this moment, this holy pause that God's given us. He's forced us into a reflective period. 
And I want us to take a serious moment to ask hard questions and to say, I don't want to be the same church after this season that we were going into it. Because while there's so much to celebrate, honestly, Park, we baptized five people in the lake yesterday, and there's a few others who are waiting to be baptized. They just weren't around in Chicago right now. God's on the move. There's so many things to celebrate. But I know that at the same time, I look back on who we were before COVID-19, and I can say, there's some work we got ahead of us. We are not yet the image that I see in this, the pages of this book. God's still got some transformation to do in us. And I don't want to miss this moment to reflect well. Something's got to change. Today's passage is a bit of a unique one. We're taking a one-week break from the Sermon on the Mount because across Park, many of our locations have celebrated baptism. And I wanted to focus in on what I believe is a passage that reflects well a turning point. And the story is of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. We find his story in 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, Hezekiah was a king who led the tribe of Judah, which was after the kingdom of Israel split. There was Israel and Judah. King Hezekiah was a king in Judah. And he led Judah through a turning point season where they turned away from things that weren't going well for them and they turned towards God. And I want to see how he did that. Now, a little bit of backstory on King Hezekiah. His father was a man by the name of King Ahaz. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, we learn a number of terrible things about Ahaz. It goes through this long list of all these terrible atrocities and abominations Ahaz committed. And then we read in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, we read this. He, Ahaz, even burned his son as an offering, it's child sacrifice, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, that was the culture of the land of Judah. That was the culture of Hezekiah's dad. I mean, Hezekiah was growing up and that was what his dad did. He's lucky he wasn't one of those sons that got sacrificed. Not only was it his dad, but, but as the king went in Israel and in Judah, so often that's how all the people went. When it says Ahaz established high places and idols throughout the land, that meant all of Judah was in a season of idol worship. And then Hezekiah becomes the king. And Hezekiah steps into this place of leadership, and he looks around, and he sees what's going on, and he begins to enact change. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at five ways that we see Hezekiah led through this turning point. And then I want to reflect for us on those five ways and see what we can learn in our own turning point today. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. We read this. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Here's what he did. He removed the high places. Remember, we just read about how Ahaz established the high places. So Hezekiah removed the high places. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the Nechashtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. 
And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and he would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to fortified cities. Now, that's the turning point. Hezekiah led reformation. He brought them back to the word of God, back to the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Now, let's consider our own turning point we're in right now. And what I want to do is I want to look at Hezekiah and say, what are some things we saw he did to lead the people of God back towards true worship of the one true and living God? Five things I see. Number one, I want to get some commentary on each of these before we reflect on ourselves. Number one, Hezekiah recognized and removed idolatrous practices. He recognized and removed idolatrous practices. We see this in verse 4. He went and it says that he tore down the high places and the pillars and the Asherah. Now, what are these things? The high places. In Old Testament Israel and throughout the surrounding nations, whatever the highest point in a city was, whether that was a hill or a mountaintop, whatever it was, that was oftentimes the center of cultic activity. It was false, sometimes demonic worship. And oftentimes there would be terrible practices. So when it says that Ahaz sacrificed his son, usually that was done at the highest place in the city. In our own city of Chicago, to be honest with you, a lot of occultic activity happens in the high places. If you think of the tops of some of the highest buildings in the city of Chicago, those are the high places of our city. And to this day, there's an interesting thing. There's occultic activity that happens at the tops of those buildings. And that's exactly what was happening back here. Now, Hezekiah goes... And he sees these high places where there's false worship taking place. He sees these pillars, which were uh, basically these statues that people would use in different ceremonies of false religions. And the Asherah poles. These were in some ways uh, similar to pillars. The Asherah was a female god of the nations. Oftentimes we find her in relationship to Baal. So if you know Baal of the Old Testament, it's an Old Testament false god that people also oftentimes worshipped. He goes up to all these idols... And he smashes them. The Hebrew is really interesting. That, that he, he tore them down. He, he broke them. He removed them. Now, I want you to think about this. He, he didn't play nicely with them. He didn't say, oh, that's okay. There's an idol over there. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to reform it as best I can over here. And I'm going to leave that idol worship over there. He went up and, and he removed these idols that had become commonplace within the people of God. This wasn't in the foreign nations. These idols had found their way into the hearts of the people of God. It did two things. Number one, when he tore them down, he was making a statement. He was saying publicly, we don't stand for this. This is not who we are. I see that idol and we're the people of God. We're not going to stand for it. And then number two, he was removing the idolatry from the presence of the people of God. Number two. Hezekiah broke the golden serpent. Really fascinating verse there, verse 4b. Let me read it to you again. It says, he removed the high places, and then it says, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. What's that talking about? Now, back in the book of Numbers, a little further back in the Old Testament, Moses, as he was leading the people of God out of Egypt, and they were wandering through the wilderness, there was this scene that happened in Numbers chapter 21, where all of a sudden they came across a place in the wilderness that was just saturated with serpents. And God's people were getting bit, and people were dying. They came into like a, a serpent nest, and they were being bit, and people were dying. And Moses called out to God, and God said, Moses... 
I will heal your people. Form a golden serpent. So take gold, mold it into a form of a serpent, and then put it up on a staff as high as you can. And all of God's people that look on that serpent will be healed immediately. All they got to do is look, exhibit faith that God can heal them. So Moses made this golden serpent, and he placed it up on a staff. God's people looked up at the serpent, and they lived. God healed them. It was amazing. Now, in the New Testament, this is really amazing. John chapter 3 actually tells us what that serpent was all about. It was always supposed to point God's people towards the truer and better Savior, towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was always its purpose. See, John chapter 3 says, look, if you think of the scenario, the people of God were wandering in the wilderness, and they were getting bit by serpents. Well, we know that the great serpent, Satan, in some ways has bit every human being. Every person is born into sin. They're born underneath a curse. But all who will look at the one who goes up on the staff, Jesus Christ, the one who is raised up, who becomes a curse on our behalf, anyone who will look at Jesus and simply gaze on him, place their faith in his reconciliation that he offers when he shed his blood on the cross, will be forgiven. There's nothing you have to do but look to Jesus. See, that's what that serpent in the Old Testament was all about. It was saying one day someone's going to come and he's going to be put up on a pike and if you will look to him, you will live. Now, what did the people of God done with it? Rather than using it as a tool to remind them of the Messiah that would come, they were worshiping it, the object. See, isn't it interesting that Sometimes what was good and important and and furthered your faith in God in the past, sometimes as it develops in your life, it becomes a stumbling block to how you relate to God in the present. The things that were good in the past, the right things to do in the past, are not always the right things to do for you now in the present. Number three. Hezekiah trusted and held fast to the Lord. That's verses 5 and 6. We get this language of he trusted in the Lord and he held fast to the Lord. Now, this is very important. Look, nobody likes a reformer. You know, when someone comes along and you're living in a culture where there's a bunch of idols all around, and someone comes along and says, we're not going to do that. Stop doing that. We're going to change the way we've been practicing our faith, and we're going to take this stuff out that you're used to and you thought was good for you, but we're going to replace it with something that's a little more difficult but a lot better, and it'll help you worship God. Nobody likes that guy. If you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, they all died pretty terrible deaths. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, if they didn't die terrible deaths, they, they were persecuted terribly because of what they were calling the people to. And in the midst of that, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He didn't care what the people of God were saying. See, sometimes you read these stories and you think, oh, it must have just been this super easy thing to bring reform. No, we're the same types of people as we were back then. We don't like change. No one likes a reformer. But here comes Hezekiah trying to bring his people back. And I'm guessing people who were trying to be honest citizens, who were trying to just do what they had always done, were saying, Hezekiah, stop being so extreme. Hezekiah, why do you got to do that? Hezekiah, you don't, you, look, we can just leave us. You do your thing over there. It's not so bad. And Hezekiah went up and he said, no, it is so bad. That's idol worship. And we won't do that as a people of God. And as he got pushed back, even from within the family of God, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He said, I make my aim to please you and only you. And I'll do whatever you tell me to do and go anywhere you tell me to go. 
Number four, Hezekiah fought against the Lord's enemies. It's interesting, verse 7b, Hezekiah didn't just sit back and look at the surrounding nations and, and think, they're all doing their thing, idol worship and child sacrifice and all that stuff. We're here in Israel and look, we'll let them do their thing. We're going to be here. We'll just kind of, if they attack us, we'll just try to defend ourselves. Hezekiah wanted to establish the blessing that was for the nations across the nations. He wanted to see the Lord's enemies taken down. And so he went and attacked. He went after the nations that were around them that were practicing idol worship and terrible abominations. And he tried to set the record straight and establish the kingdom of God in strength. He didn't just sit back and play defense. He wanted to see the Lord win the culture. Number five, the Lord was with him and Hezekiah prospered. That's verses seven, eight. Verses 6 through 8. The Lord was with him and he prospered. Now what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that he prospered in the sense of his kingdom grew and his fame grew. To prosper under the Trinitarian God of the Bible is to grow in relationship with God. You see, there's nothing more sweet to the human soul than knowing that you are walking by the power of the Spirit. That God and you are are in unity. And, and even though other people are looking out on you and thinking you're crazy, and even though people are judging what you do and judging what your church does, they look in on you and they don't understand it, but you have the sweetness and the richness of knowing your shepherd's voice and walking with him every day and listening to him and being part of a community on fire for the gospel. See, that's what it means to abound in the Lord. That's what it means to prosper in the Lord. And when you do these things that Hezekiah exhibited for us, you can't help but prosper in the Lord. Your life begins to reform. You begin to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life once again. And it's good. Five things Hezekiah did to bring about a turning point. You think you understand Hezekiah a little bit? Getting a sense for who this guy was and the king that he was and the turning point he led through? And here's the thing, church. I believe we are in a turning point. And what I want to see happen is I want to see the idols in our life and in our community weeded out. I want to see them gone. I don't want to see them toyed with or played with. I want to see them expunged and gone and torn down. And I want to see it replaced with this, with the word of God and his practices and how he said we ought to live our life and how he said we ought to do church. And I want to see a Holy Spirit fill fire in your bellies to want to worship the King of Kings and come together as a community and see culture one for Christ. That's what I want to see. And I think God can do that right now. I honestly think he's given us this season to reflect. But if we don't pause and reflect and ask ourselves individually and collectively, what do we need to change about who we are? We're going to miss it. The whole thing's going to come and go, and we're going to try to go back to what was normal before and realize God's not calling us to what was normal before, but he's calling us to something new and dangerous and better for what is coming ahead of us. So, Let's look at Hezekiah. Let's see if we can take those five principles we just saw and try to understand how we might apply them to our lives. Number one, Hezekiah recognized and removed idolatrous practices. He led in the turning point by recognizing and removing idolatrous practices. Now, we've talked about idols in our church I don't know how many number of times. You know what an idol is. You should know this, church, if you've been following this preaching for any number, any number of days now. An idol in our day, and especially in the West, in a place like where our church is gathered in Chicago in the 21st century, oftentimes idols are not 
gold statues or poles that we're going and doing worship ceremonies at. Rather, an idol is anything you give your heart fully over to. Anything that captures your attention and your, your heart and your mind more than Jesus is an idol. Anything that you want more than you want Jesus is an idol. And in our culture, there's no shortage of idols. Jesus, I'm guessing for many people listening to this, gets a very small portion of our mind of any given day. We don't necessarily frame all the things we do around Jesus. We frame it oftentimes around our ego, around our pride, around what we want to see take place, around greed, around money, and our pursuit of money. There are so many idols that we bow down to that, that in the New Testament, the New Testament church, they oftentimes said, look, if you see a greedy person in your church who's claiming to be a follower of Christ, this is 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5. It says, don't even associate with them. Don't associate with the greedy. Now, I think greed is one of the largest idols in our church that never gets talked about. We just let it go. We talk about other stuff. We talk about sexual sin. We talk about any number of sins, and we talk about how big a deal they are. But greed, that's kind of one of those idols you can just let hide under the rug. And the New Testament church didn't want any idolatry in it. They said, if you see greed, get it out. You you pray for reform in that person, but if they're unchanging, if they're unrepentant, don't let idolatry grow up in the community. They weeded out the idols. And I want to ask you, I don't want to tell you what to do right now. I want to send you into a place of reflection that you don't miss this turning point. What idols are in your life? Because whatever's in your life, you're bringing into your community with you. You're bringing into your church life with you. If you've got unchecked idols, church, now is the time to weed them out. Turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Repent of them. Let him examine your soul and reveal to you what idols you have. Because I'm telling you, they're crippling you. You think it's no big deal, but you're wondering why you're not growing faster in the Lord Jesus and sanctifying more. It's because you got unchecked idols. Number two, Hezekiah broke the golden serpent. Now remember, the golden serpent was a religious object that was good in the past. It was used for a purpose in the past, but was, had become a stumbling block for them in the present. They had started worshiping the object rather than the thing that the object pointed towards. Now, I think there are a lot of practices that we have done as a church in the past that were good for us in the past that will not work for us now and maybe not in the future. Let me give you a few examples. Now, remember what I said. No one likes a reformer. No one liked Hezekiah breaking the serpent. They all loved it. It was Moses' serpent. Come on! Who wants to smash the thing that Moses made? That's like the worst thing you can do, right? No, it was the best thing he could have done. It brought him back to true worship. But no one liked Hezekiah for doing this. Let me talk about two things I see. Number one, for a while, now parents, you're going you're gonna to hate me right now. I'm sorry. Just bear with me. I got three of my own kids, so trust me, I'm in this with you. We're not going to be able to do children's ministry as we knew it for a long time. I don't know how long. But the whole premise of coming to church on a Sunday and dropping your kids off in a separate place of ministry and then going and doing adult worship separate from your children, I don't know when we're going to be able to do that again. It's not going to be in September. I hope it'll be in January. But what if it's not? 
Who knows what tomorrow brings, church? Are we going to allow not having children's ministry, which is very comfortable for parents. I'm a parent. I get it, right? This is, this, I, I'm, I'm grateful for children's ministry because of the power of what it does, discipling our children. I love it. And I love that we can also be able to pay full attention without our kids on our laps at the same time. Are we going to allow not having children's ministry for a season to become a barrier of why we don't dig deep into rich community? What if we need our children in the room with us? And what if God's going to use that to form a new sense of worship where our children are with us and we're discipling them on a Sunday in the room and singles and families have to rely on each other because, you know, when a parent's got more kids than they have hands, you kind of need to lean on the other people around you so that you can help your kids listen, help them learn, and you all are in it together. See, I, I got a feeling that the New Testament church didn't show up at the assembly and drop their kids off in a different room. Maybe they did. I don't see that anything in there prescribed for us. Now, if I'm touching on something a little insensitive, if I'm touching on something that's sensitive for you, perhaps it's because it's become an object of worship rather than something that's supposed to point you to worship. How about small groups? When are we going to be able to do small groups again? Groups of 10 to 15 in, in small homes in the winter? Many people won't be able to do that. You can do it out in a park in the summer. But when the weather gets colder, are we going to be able to do small groups like we used to? I don't think so. Imagine the new person coming to church. Brand new person. They get in touch with me. They say, hey, pastor, I'm brand new. Can I get plugged into community? What am I going to tell them? Sure, here's a group of 15 people. You can join them on a Zoom call. You think they're going to make good friends that way? What if we have to rethink how we do the primary lane of community in our church, small groups? I hear you say, no, small groups, that's my community, don't break that up. It was good in the past. Is it what's right for us right now? Do we need to change things to be faithful to where God has us right now and to better reflect what this is all about? Maybe. Again, I'm not providing answers for you right now. I'm helping send you on this journey. I want you to be on it with me. We got hard decisions ahead of us because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And if you're on this with us, and if you're looking in the pages of Scripture and saying, God, how can I be formed through this? Something's going to change. Number three, Hezekiah trusted the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Look, on virtually every issue that's floating around the political landscape and the social media landscape, on every issue, there's a million different positions you can take. And if you take the biblical one, people are not going to be happy with you. People are going to look in and say, how small-minded of you. And then you'll, you could possibly, if you wanted to, look back and say, actually, you're being the small-minded one. It's the Lord who's the truth. He is the one I'm going to stand on. There's no other rock like him. But to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and to be unpopular in the eyes of the world and sometimes even among other Christians. We talked about this with friendly fire. And to just trust in him and to say, I don't need anyone else's approval. I'm going to be faithful I'm going to love people so well that they see Jesus in my hands and feet. And I'm going to have such faith that when they want to disagree with me, it's okay. Are you willing to go there with us? Hezekiah fought against the Lord's enemies. He didn't just sit back and say, hey, what's happening in culture? We'll just let culture kind of go its own way and we'll just kind of you know, hide in our holy huddle and do our thing. No, he pushed back against the culture with the power of the God of the Bible. 
I've got a vision for our church. I want to see us push back against the cultural tide. I want to see the kingdom of Jesus established in secular places and secularism be pushed back because God's people went into it with the power of the Holy Spirit and we saw the enemy's gates fall down. Did you know Jesus said that would happen when you went on the offense? In the reformers' age, they called it the church militant. Not because they were trying to kill or hurt their enemy, but just because they realized the church was not stagnant. The church did not hide. The church was offensive. I'll tell you what, church, we're in the South Loop. Do you know how much opportunity we have? Some of the things that have been on my mind. The Loop. I think cold turkey evangelism in the Loop is one of the most important things we can do. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are gathering from all across the nation in one close proximity. And we can go right in there and do evangelism and share the gospel with them. We've been doing this every week. Just last week, we saw a young man come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what happens when you share the good news. We get on the offensive. I want you to come with us to the Loop and share the gospel. Just down the street from us, we have a brand new neighborhood being built. The 78th neighborhood. What if we put a team together to get in the ground level and say, how do we proclaim this land as Jesus's? Wouldn't that be amazing? What if from the ground up, as it got built up, we had people in there praying, smothering in prayer, and having a plan of how we were going to start small groups and a church in that neighborhood? Hyde Park, just down the street from us. University of Chicago is like the Harvard of the Midwest. And in that university, there is more anti-biblical thinking happening on a regular basis. And I want to get in there. I want to get in there and debate. And I want to have meaningful conversation and show that the God of the Bible is not only intellectually consistent and tenable, but actually their worldview so oftentimes not being built on this is the one that has all sorts of holes in it. And I want to put a team together to go in. And how do we love Hyde Park? How do we step in there? It's right there on our doorstep. I want to move on the offensive. Number four, or number five, the Lord was with him and and Hezekiah prospered. Church, when we do these things, when we reflect, when we allow God to dictate how we do what we do, even when it's uncomfortable, when it changes us, God is pleased with what we do. And we get this inner strength of walking with the Lord Jesus and knowing that we're not just playing church. I don't want to play church. I don't just want to go through the motions, what everyone says we're supposed to do, because it's what we always did. I want to look to the pages of Scripture and then get on my knees with you and build a movement of prayer where we hold everything with open hands. We just have a whiteboard and we put everything we used to do and then erase it. And then we say, okay, Holy Spirit, listen, what would you have us do? And whatever he tells us to do, we just build the church up that way because church, we can't just do what we were doing before. We physically can't do it. Everything's changed. And God's given us this moment. Will you go on this journey with us? Will you pray and ask the Lord, what idols are in my life? What objects were good in the past? And will you be part of the unity of the church? If we allow this non-community that we have right now, and what I mean by that is being apart from each other, if we allow being apart from each other to actually break these relationships, we're going to build some major wounds in the church. They're going to take years to rebuild. But if we see this as a turning point, and if you'll come with us, and if you'll commit to getting on your knees in prayer and holding everything with open hands and fighting for the unity of the church and listening to the Spirit because He is leading. I know it. If you will do that, this will be a season we'll look back on and we'll say this was a turning point.
we grew through this. God did something remarkable. Church, join us in this journey. I pray you will. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We know this is your scriptures, and we know that you have something to teach us. And so, God, we are praying that anything that was said today would be seared in the minds and the hearts of our people. Do this work, we pray. Build your church. Build us together. In Jesus' holy name, amen.